Welcome to the Idea Week podcast, where investors and entrepreneurs share their wisdom and insights into investing, business, and life. The Idea Week podcast is brought to you by MOI Global, the membership community of intelligent investors. Members of MOI Global enjoy special access to Idea Week, the annual winter summit that brings together investors and entrepreneurs in one-of-a-kind St. Moritz, Switzerland. And now, here is your host, John Mihaljevic. It's my pleasure to welcome to the conversation Sahil Desai, Portfolio Manager at DS Advisors, uh, based in the New York City area. Uh, Sahil has been uh, with DS Advisors for uh, just over five years and uh, has been a member of uh, the MI Global community uh, for some time as well. And I'm uh, very grateful, Sahil, that we have this opportunity uh, to learn more about your investment philosophy. Uh, so maybe uh, we could start with a little bit of background uh, on yourself and uh, your path in investing. Sure. Well, for, first of all, John, thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be able to contribute to the uh, MOI community. Uh, so, you know, I think I'll, I'll just take a step back and, and talk a little bit about our organization and, and kind of how I ended up here uh, and then share a little bit about how we're uh, thinking about uh, investing. So, you know, we're a single family office uh, based in uh, New York and in Miami. And, uh, you know, we, we we started with a, a pool of capital that was uh, derived from a, a liquidity event from uh, fr from a, a business my parents ran uh, and, and still run to this day. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we had always, uh, I'd always had an interest in, in investing and early in my career uh, sort of aided my parents with some some basic uh, asset allocation decisions. But as time passed, we realized that we really wanted to uh, take more control of our investments. And so about uh, eight years ago, we decided to formally form a family office and start to hire talent that could help us allocate capital across various pools. Um, I was uh, in, in sort of the middle of my training. I spent uh, two years as a trader at a, at a sort of quantitative hedge fund here in New York City, and then actually spent two years out in India working in uh, in private equity. Uh, and then um, while I was in India is when we actually started the family office. Um, I came back, did my did my MBA, and joined in, in a full-time capacity um, after, after my MBA. And in terms of my day-to-day -day responsibilities, I, I sort of wear two hats. Um, I run a long-only publicly listed portfolio and uh, alongside uh, my sister who also works at the family office uh, oversee sort of our broad strategy uh, across you know, sort of three different areas. We, we focus on um, public markets, direct private equity, and real estate, all with sort of a long-term um, value-oriented mindset. And, and tell us, if you would, um, the 
experience prior uh, to the family office? Um, uh, how did that help uh, with what you do now and maybe also how uh, your educational path uh, at uh, HBS uh, helped as well? Sure. So, you know, I would, I would characterize uh, my training as being informal. Um, you know, I, I, I think the formal training was, uh, you know, so I studied electrical engineering at, at Princeton, uh, did some finance there, and then, of course, HBS, um, and then in between did, did some work, um, as I mentioned, uh, as a trader and, and private equity. I think, you know, all, all of those together gave me a very wide swath of uh, experiences. I did everything from really understanding markets and, and how they function on a on a day-to-day basis to being a very slow and steady uh, investor in private equity and and built a, a sort of set of frameworks between them through my formal educations at at, at both uh, Princeton and HBS. But in some sense, I think what was even even more valuable was was sort of the the trust that uh, my parents put in me in, in in sort of advising them on where they should be uh, investing their their money while they were still running a, a business full time, uh, and, and that was in you know sort of taking all the meetings with various portfolio managers, funds, advisors, etc., trying to learn sort of how it is that different organizations think about allocating or, or sorry uh, managing money, um, and uh, uh, you know I, I think in some sense that really helped me. Form the perspective of what I believed would be the the best course of action for us as a as an organization going forward. And uh, to what extent uh, have you had uh, exposure to your parents' business, and has that been helpful in uh, learning about uh, the drivers of value creation? Yeah, I think if I look at the way that we're running our family office today, um, I think the value that my parents created in their business, which was a sort of a technology services business, is is really directly tied to that. Um, you know, I think we realized when we took a step back that we had created a lot of value through concentration, through really understanding what was going on under the hood in a business, um, and 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 to some extent having some some real control over outcomes. Um, I think the further away you are from the day-to-day decision-making, the harder it becomes to understand what decisions are being made and, 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 and where, and, and it's harder to keep your eye, uh, finger on the pulse of, of, of where things are going um, down the road. And, and so, you know, as we think about um, building portfolios across our different uh, pools of capital, we really focus on owning assets and owning businesses for the long run and forming partnerships with the people who are running those businesses um, that are that are symbiotic, where, where they have certainty of, of capital, certainty of support for their strategies, and, and we have a lot of trust in them to execute on, um, on the business that they're running. Does this apply to public companies as well? In other words, do you take uh, significant stakes in listed firms? Um, so I would say that we we like to be concentrated. 
Um, but we certainly are not um, uh, what you would call activist uh, in any way. We, I think in the public markets, we're, we're really putting our, our trust in, in great managers uh, with, you know, the traditional sort of the, uh, great capital allocation uh, skill sets and in businesses that are, um, we believe, have long runways to grow and, and, and hopefully, you know, widening moats around them. Uh, I think I think the the closer partnerships tend to be on the private and real estate side, where where we can perhaps influence um, influence change or 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 provide some certainty to to operators. How do you think about um, the asset allocation uh, side of things? Um, you know. Most of us are familiar with the Yale model or or other endowment uh, style models. Do you think about it in similar terms? You know, I, we really don't. Um, you know, I think we like to be truly opportunistic. Um, and and you know, the 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 one you know. So I, I actually had the benefit of of seeing David Swenson speak a couple uh, weeks ago, and I think the one benefit that he has afforded is that there's not a, a drag uh, on his portfolio from from uh, from taxes uh, and and but but that's something that's that's a, a very real cost to us and so we try to orient ourselves towards um, assets that don't create a lot of uh, a lot of taxes that's why we don't invest for example in in funds that are churning we try to focus on portfolios that that create their their returns within um, within the businesses and, and create a, a compounding effect. Um, you know, I, I, I would I would characterize our asset allocation as having a floor in terms of dollars allocated to public markets, um, uh, private equity, and, and and real estate. But in terms of each incremental dollar, we're not trying to allocate it in a prescription a predetermined um, percentage split. Now, you talked about uh, the goal to invest in long-term compounders and, and companies that can widen their moat over time. Uh, what are some of the sources of competitive advantage that you have found to be most durable in your experience? You know that's a great question, and I, and I and I think it really varies from business to business. Um, I think that um, you know, in, in, just to, just to draw a couple examples of of the types of things we're looking at today. Um, you know, we are looking at things that on an that optically look very expensive, but when when you look under the hood, these are software businesses that have. Uh, extremely sticky recurring revenues, and we realize that once a company gets into uh, a customer, it's it, you know really starts to form the backbone of of that company's of their customers' operations. And so you know we that's an example of something where we believe it, it, the switching costs become higher and higher as every day passes. Um, on the on the other side, um, you know I think there are a lot of businesses that we. I shouldn't say a lot, but there are businesses that we look at that um, you know just have a great track record of 
allocating uh, capital effectively and and uh, you know perhaps rolling up homogenous assets, um, whether it be um, uh, you know, you know some, I, either uh, you know kind of acquiring similar businesses in a in in a in a sort of growing concentric regional area or or um, you know uh, just. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, just basically b- c- snapping up their competition. But but what's what is is very clear in looking at the operating history of these managers is they they are extremely disciplined about what transactions they will do and what they won't do. And and it's and it's very apparent when you look at the return on capital that they're generating over not just a year or two but over decades that. You know, you're, you're, the the moat that you're creating is really in around that manager and that team, that they're going to make smart decisions through you know up, down, and, and sideways markets. I'm glad you mentioned uh, management and and the people running those businesses that are consolidators, um, because it would seem that without the right uh, leadership in place. Uh, an M&A spree may not necessarily create value, but perhaps the opposite. So how do you um, assess the quality and incentives of management? Right. So, you know, I I think we really like to see uh, compensation structures that incentivize management for creating shareholder value over time. Um, we like to see you know structures that are not uh, th- that don't have sort of a a a, a bullet uh, allocation of, of of shares or options, uh, but rather that are spread out over um, uh, longer vesting periods, and which in some sense can um, you know create an ever growing hurdle for management to to exceed. Uh, in other words, you know, it, it doesn't create an incentive for management to hit it out of the park in one year and then underperform in the next. And and you know, above all, I think management act. We love to see management actively purchasing shares out of their own pocket rather than just being given shares uh, or options. Um, you know. And then. Um... Just to touch a little bit more on these uh, consolidation uh, stories or, or theses, um, are these generally situations where uh, they are buying smaller competitors uh, in cash transactions, or is there a uh, stock as currency component? Well, of course, we love uh m a transactions that are are done with with cash because you know it's less dilutive to us but you know i think we found that good managers are selective about when they use uh equity and and when they do it it can be a transforma- transformational acquisition where they're really acquiring something or or, a, or another business of a comparable size uh but at a price that um is accretive to um the prior shareholders. 
And um, maybe we can take a step back and talk about idea generation a little bit. Uh, to what extent do you use quantitative uh, methods to of generating ideas, and to what extent do ideas come in 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 other ways? Sure. So you know, I, I would characterize uh, our idea generation as coming from three three sources. I think we have a set of screens. Uh, you know, probably no rocket science there that that we are constantly running to see what comes up. And from time to time, we'll we'll tap those screens and and do a deep dive on the businesses that come across. But I think perhaps most more importantly, or or more revel, relevant f- for us as longer term investors in, in in sort of higher quality businesses, um, are, are are the other two sources. One is just reading, whether it be the news or or um, old investor letters. I think I think there's frameworks that you can can um, acquire from from doing a lot of reading that then you overlay on top of businesses and you can identify opportunities to, where where a company is starting to form or has formed a really great competitive advantage and then finally and I, I sort of treat this as, as similar to reading is is talking to other people you know we we like to be collaborative um, we don't like to sort of believe that that Knowledge is is proprietary, and so um, we we've created a, a small cohort of call it colleagues and managers that are are sort of single or or or, or two person firms, and we talk to them constantly, um, share ideas, share insights, co create with them, uh, and I think you know that that really serves two purposes. First of all, it it um, brings ideas in the door, but second of all, it acts as a great and an honest sounding board for the work we're doing and the um you know the opportunities that we're seeing let's talk a little bit about uh the art of valuing a business um how do you think about uh intrinsic value and um you know what is your process for estimating that for for the companies you look at. Sure. So, you know, I, I think across the board, and I think this is particularly relevant in in you know the the end of 2017 market we're in right now, which where the you know S and P 500 as as one benchmark is is at or near all time highs. Is you know we like to look with a minimum of a sort of a five year. Uh, horizon on on every investment. We, we we really try to avoid situations where we're we're betting that a you know a a, a fifth, that fifty cents will turn into a dollar in in six months or twelve months or even eighteen months. Um, so you know I, I think I think for us everything starts with the business. You know what does it do? What is, you know how does it make money? Um, who are its competitors, et cetera. And then we try to build up a model of how this business can be expected to perform over time and how uh, sort of money will flow through the organization um, as, the, as the company grows and, and builds its market share and builds its customer base, et cetera. And, and, and then we, you know, we, we sort of look at what can this business be five, 10 years down the road and then back 
you know, across different scenarios and then back into a price that we believe would be reasonable to pay today. Um, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, that, that, can, that can come in, in the form of a DCF or it can come in the form of, of sort of pr- projecting forward and, uh, and, and giving sort of a, a reasonable multiple down the road. But, but ultimately, it's about getting comfortable with, um, with the uncertainty of outcomes and being conservative about, about, you know, the range of those outcomes and, and then sort of estimating, um, the, the returns that we can expect to get on our capital, um, over a long term. At, at the outset, you also mentioned, um, some, companies that you've looked at or invested in where the headline multiples may be uh, quite high, but where there are drivers the market is not appreciating sufficiently. Um, Give us a sense of perhaps uh, some of those types of situations where uh, the market or other investors tend to miss um, components of value? Sure. So, you know, I, I think one of the the industries that uh, we spent a little time looking at uh, more recently is um, sort of the software as a service business model. And I think what you see if you, if you just, these, these companies tend not to screen particularly well because in many cases they're not profitable. But when you look under the hood, you're realizing that they have phenomenal gross margins, you know, 80% plus, um, and they're plowing, you know, millions, and millions of dollars into R&D and sales and marketing. And what we try to do is is back into what the productivity of those sales and marketing dollars are in terms of generating future revenues. And in in doing so, we can we can see that, you know, what they're really doing is 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 entrenching themselves more and more into customers and expanding their customer base such that when they when they down the road can you know scale back their sales and marketing efforts they have they have built a very very large revenue base that will then um, flow tons of cash back to investors And if we could switch a little bit to um, the discussion of the portfolio, um, you talked a little bit about concentration. How do you strike that balance between being concentrated in your best ideas while remaining sufficiently diversified to keep the downside under control? So, you know, I think over, um, you know, we, we certainly don't look at returns on a year-over-year basis. Um, So diversification, just for the sake of diversification, is certainly not um, something we we worry too much about. If anything, volatility is our friend in that if we understand a business well, um, you know, the the, the market undervaluing that business in the short run is an opportunity for us. Um, But, but, you know, in a practical sense, you know, we, we, we certainly don't want to put 100% 100% of our position on on day one, and so what I, I I think what I try to do is create what I would call a a a sort of research portion of the portfolio where we're taking toehold positions to kind of put some skin in the game. 
make make us force us to sort of take our uh, that that business seriously and and continue to, to to do work on it, continue to learn about the business, and then as we build comfort, we start to scale those those toehold positions up to real to real size, and um, and then over time continue to add opportunistically when we believe uh, the market is uh, underappreciating uh, the, the business's value. Maybe we could talk a little bit about um, your process or any routines that you have found uh, helpful uh, in your investing uh, because you, it's clear that your approach is quite different from a lot of other market participants that uh, – tend to be short-term oriented and maybe focused more on news flow. How do you kind of structure your own process to filter out the noise and allow yourself to focus on the things that, that, that really matter? You know, it's, it's difficult. And I, I think we, we remind ourselves um, that we need to focus on the long-term every single day. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of a mantra, I think, throughout our, our office, uh, that, you know, let's, let's, is, is this a, an opportunity that's really going to move the needle for us or are we sort of chasing what we believe is a, uh, a short-term opportunity? That being said, you know, I think by, uh, we, we've actually formed an investment committee within our family office such that every investment over, above sort of that, that toehold size, has to be approved by um, by a, a, a committee that you know is, is sort of a couple members of our family and 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 our uh, another portfolio manager and our CFO. And I think what that really does is it it creates a separation between the analyst and the decision maker, and it and it you know it, it forces or it prevents any one individual from losing sort of the forest for the trees. Um, and and allows us to make high quality sort of collective decisions. Along the same vein, um, you know, we, we we always try to take our time in understanding businesses and making decisions. Um, we you know, as I mentioned before, we 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 like to get you know uh, um, a a sort of optimistic and pessimistic view of every, any business that we're looking at, so that we're aware of the pitfalls that might exist and also aware of you know the opportunities the, the positives and and by by being sort of very thorough in in getting multiple perspectives from multiple sources we slow ourselves down and force ourselves to make decisions that are well thought out and hopefully will stand the test of time To what uh, extent do you uh, seek dialogue with the management teams of um, the public companies you invest in? Is that something that's important to you? Yeah, you know, I mean, we we, we value it where we can get it. Um, you know, the, the 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 access that we're able to get is you know is, is much higher with small and mid cap names, and and uh, you know, I think as companies get bigger. Uh, we tend to find ourselves, you know, talking a lot more to the IR teams. Um, 
but you know at the same time those companies are much better understood and so you know um you know the the management the, there's a lot of intelligence already out there on the businesses um and the management teams in many cases are are very public with um you know they they're they're doing presentations they're they're um you know they're sort of advocates for their business and so we can derive a lot of uh insight from reading transcripts and and watching uh interviews of of these of these management teams to sort of build a sense for how do they think about their business are are they talking about you know sort of next quarter's earnings or are they talking about how they're they're sort of evolving their business to to address um you know headwinds across you know uh, on the horizon and in terms of um seeking out these uh, great management teams uh, are there any constants or um anything you've come across there that uh has worked well and that you tend to look for over and over again uh, I'll just as an example probably the simplest one would be where management has a significant stake and uh, essentially is an owner operator of the business um are there any other things that uh, you've found helpful in that regard Yeah so there's there 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 are three things I think um as you mentioned you know owner operators you know we we in some sense are a family business and so we love partnering with other family businesses uh whether they be you know a, a, a you know a, a classic family business that's multigenerational or a you know a founder led business um we, we love to see um management teams that are actively um purchasing shares and 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 really uh owning a meaningful stake in the business even if they aren't the founders. Uh and then and we you know I think we look for people whose whose messaging on their company goes beyond a you know sort of a one year horizon. I think companies you know, management teams that that look beyond that in and and plan beyond that tend to um have the same alignment as us as investors. Do you look uh globally when it comes to finding uh managements that can compound value for a long time? The, the short answer is yes. Uh that being said, I think we've found that there's enough opportunity in the US or in, at least in the US and Canada alone that we haven't had to spend a lot of time outside as a firm um you know if i if i were to look at the the holdings we have i'd, I'd say there the vast majority are north america a few um in europe and then outside of that um you know we we really don't see a lot um you know we we've large uh, excuse me we we've largely uh stayed away from emerging markets not because there aren't great managers there but i think it's much harder to to build confidence and build intuition uh when you're not sitting in um in in some of these markets. And uh as a family office do you invest all the capital directly or do you ever seek out outside managers for any specific pieces of uh 
the asset structure? So, so the, the the core of what we do is is managing our own money. Um, I mentioned, you know, sort of a cohort of of public markets uh, investors that uh, that we talk to. In a few cases, we've um, allocated small amounts of capital to them to help. You know, I think it access has two benefits. First of all, we're helping you know people who we we whose whose insight we value build their own businesses by giving them some capital to get off the ground. Um, but but more importantly and, and far more valuable is 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 you know gaining uh, some insight for them and 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 having a sort of a uh, a two way conversation about idea generation about about what they're seeing in the markets. And so, so that's on the public side, and then on the on the private side, um, you know, we're very active in 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 seeking to partner with with other um, other investors, whether they be funds or other family offices or independent sponsors. Um, you know, it's it's the, the nature of that business is is such that you know partnership is 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 a very important part of it, uh, and and similarly on the real estate side, um, you know. We, we are not the types that are going to be, um, uh, you know, boots on the ground with the real estate. So it's very important to find local operators, um, local investors who really know a market very well and who we can uh, partner with to to seek out in, uh, opportunities that um, fit within our uh, our parameters in terms of return, risk, et cetera. Maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, investment mistakes and the things that uh, tend to derail investors. Um, what would you say um, are the biggest mistakes that tend to keep investors from reaching their goals? Sure. Um I mean, so, so, so there are many. Uh, you know, I, I, I think that um, I find it sometimes uh, very good to kind of go back to first principles. You know, I, in, in the spirit of, of reading, you know, I, I, I love reading people like Howard Marks and Warren Buffett, and, and you know, there's there's certain mantras that they have. Um, you know, and, and, and I, I think one of one that both of them kind of say in different ways is, you know. Price is what you pay. Value is what you get. And um, quite often, I think where, where investors can get it wrong, especially over the long run, is if they pay too much for a business and, and have too too rosy a picture of what a business can do going forward. Um, I, I think that can be a a, a, a meaningful uh, drag on on long term uh, returns. Um, you know, and then I think the, the other one is, is is blind spots, and and um, you know, uh, you know, and that is, you know, what are the things that can that can go wrong? You know, uh, let's say you even pay a, a a very attractive price for a business, there there are still many many problems that can come up, uh, and that can, those can be operational problems, they can be uh, competitive problems, they can be uh, capital structure problems, and. Um, uh, I, I think a lot of that again comes from a, you know, from from irrational exuberance, right? Saying, "Listen, this business has done so well for such a long time, or they have a, a great track record of doing 
of, of paying down debt. And so they, it's, it's reasonable to believe that they're going to do so going forward. Um, so, you know, what we, what, what we try to do, uh, and, and, and listen, we've, we've made our, our fair share of mistakes, and I, I know we will continue to make them in, in, in the future. Uh, but what we hope to do is, is avoid as many as possible by making sure that we get a diversity of, of, of perspectives, uh, both internally and, and from the outside uh, on, on every investment that we make. It would seem that uh, a quite a good subset of, of mistakes happen due to various uh, biases or emotional influence. Um, how do you uh, look at that side or that category of mistakes and uh, to what extent are you actively trying to mitigate uh, some of those biases? So, so I think there are um, th- there are two things that we do. Um, first of all, we try to keep very um, very detailed logs of of all the investments we make, the things that went well, the things that went poorly. Do sort of a post mortem internally about about investments that we can we can constantly be learning. Um, and then, you know, as I mentioned before, I think you know I think every Every investor, every and, and and to some extent, even every organization does have consistent biases. But what we hope to do is is separate out the analysis portion of an investment from the ultimate decision. So you know, on a day to day basis, I have a few colleagues that are working on on different ideas at any given time. I try not to to follow every single data point that they're collecting on those. Because otherwise, I'm I'm sort of biasing myself positively or negatively towards that opportunity. But rather, I say this, and you you go do the work, you go um, form the thesis, and then once it's it's more fully baked, then you know let's talk about it as a as a as a team, uh, and and you know kind of rip it apart. I think the the, the more you can um, have different members of your team play devil's advocate to each other, the, uh, the more likely you are to, to avoid some of these, these systematic biases and, and hopefully let through the ones that um, are, you know, let through the opportunities that have, uh, you know, have, have met a lot of the, the requirements and, and, and don't have uh, you know, sort of big red flags. One thing we like to always ask is uh, book recommendations and uh, any um, reading that uh, you found particularly insightful that uh, you would recommend to other members of the community. Uh, Does anything stand out uh, in that regard? Sure. Um, You know, I I think these are both... um probably uh, repeats the, of, of other things that you've, uh, other people you've talked about. I, I love reading Howard Marks's letters. I think he's, he's just very insightful uh, and, and, uh, uh, and thoughtful. Um, the, the other book that, you know, everyone who, who joins us, uh, we, we, we buy him a copy is uh, The Education of a Value Investor, uh, Guy Spears' book. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's not just about investing, but it's about, um, you know, building an organization, 
putting yourself in the right frame of mind to to be successful as an investor. Uh, and you know, and it, culture is so important in an organization. So you know, we want to we want people to start on the right foot by uh, by uh, you know, kind of reading that book and understanding um, how we want to think, how we want them to think about uh, their work on a day-to-day basis. And, and perhaps as we uh, finish up, uh, what kind of uh, feedback or interactions uh, with other members of the community uh, do you think might be particularly helpful uh, to yourself? Um, so, so just to clarify that, uh, you're saying uh, how how could other members of the community help our organization? Sure, perhaps uh, a, a member who is listening to this conversation or who might uh, participate uh, at Idea Week or otherwise uh, cross paths. Sure. Well, you know, I mean, I think uh, we, we love collaborating with 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 other managers, with other people. On anything, and so um, whether it's uh, someone who uh, you know wants to use us as a sounding board, wants it has has an opportunity that they'd like to to to, to hash out, or or would love to you know collaborate on, with us on something that we're looking at, um, we we really love that. Um, uh, you know, also if if anyone uh, is um, you know knows. You know, sort of listens to this podcast and and either thinks themselves or or a or a friend or colleague of theirs uh, might be might be interested in in working uh, with a organization like ours. You know, we we always love uh, we're always open to to building our team and you know find it's finding like minded individuals who would who would you know sort of be additive. Great, Sahil. Well, we'll leave it there. I've uh, greatly enjoyed. Uh getting to know you and uh, what you do through this conversation. And I hope we'll uh, have the opportunity to continue it in the coming months. Uh, John, I, I, I really look forward to that. Thank you again for uh, giving me this opportunity. Thank you so much and goodbye for now. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Idea Week podcast, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global the membership community of intelligent investors. Learn more at moiglobal.com.